Hey guys, sorry I've been AWOL for a while. I uh, got contacted last week by a casting director for a television network. Um, They are in production of a TV show, which I cannot mention the premise or the name or the channel. But I was interviewed uh, both last week and today as well. And so I uh, had to basically figure out a way to take everything that I know about the nature of our reality and um, simulation hypothesis and philosophy and quantum physics and figure out a way to condense it down to a 30 to 45 minute interview. And then during the interview, I found out that they were going to take that 30 to 45 minute conversation and whittle it down to uh, a four to five minute clip. Um, I didn't prepare for a four to five minute clip. I prepared enough information for a, you know, 30 to 45 minute, uh, interview. And so, um, I had a lot of data that ended up not using. Um, if you think taking everything that you know, or as much as you know about the nature of reality and condensing it to a 30 minute conversation, um, and a four minute soundbite is difficult. I am here to attest to you that it absolutely is. Um, You know, with the podcast, what I love about the podcast, it's like, you know, stream of consciousness there. You know, your audience is already established. A lot of people that are listening to you kind of already understand what you're talking about. So their minds are open and things of that nature. But it's like when you're talking to a casting director and you're saying things like, you know, the sun has changed color from yellow to white. And you ask them what color is the sun and they say yellow and then you'll know it's white. And then they're like, what, what proof do you have of that? And you're like, just go look outside. It's white. Um, and then their response is like, okay, well, how does that break down to, you know, the universe being a simulation? And you're like, oh, that's a great question. I'm excited to explain that to you. But then you have to stop and look at the clock and realize like, oh, I don't have time to explain that to you. And so I found myself really wanting to like connect with this person, like turn the camera off. I just want to talk to you like a human being and explain this to you. But I understand also that I'm like not the only person that I'm, that's, you know, that was being interviewed. Um, So, you know, that was kind of the, you know, disappointing thing of it because I could tell that the guy was, um, was really um, interested at the very least and really intrigued um, as well. So I, I really liked that. And, there was a part of me that was like, damn the show, like, let's be friends. <laughs> like, if you're interested in this stuff, I could, I could, I can show you the world. Um, but anyway, it, you know, I understand the nature of these things. And, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, asked to be on the show, that would be super awesome. And if not, you know, we're going to still continue doing what we're doing here in the podcast. And I appreciate you guys um, listening in. So the nature of this uh, episode is uh, I'm going to actually wanted to take, I figured, look, I spent like, you know, two to three days really revisiting everything that I knew about um, quantum physics and kind of, you know, willing it down. And I realized that half the information I I had written down, um, I didn't get to use. So I was like, hey, podcast. So I was like, I really want to share it with you guys. So um, I'm going to talk to you about certain things. So I don't know, I don't recall um, if in previous episodes when I talk about our, our reality being a simulation, if I actually give you know specific examples or if I just say, hey, go Google this shit or both. Um, but since I've already Googled this shit <laughs> and, and I, went book it, I went back and you know, re-looked at and re-listened to some of my books on quantum physics, I figured let me you know, hit you guys up with this information. So starting first, the fact that our brain is a hologram. All right, let's lean, let's start with that. Um, a hologram is described as a physical recording of an interference pattern, which uses diffractions to uh, produce a 3D light field. By that definition, David Bohm, who was a quantum physicist and a neurologist by the name of Carl Pribben, both came to the conclusion by working together off of each other's theories that your brain is literally like an organic hologram in a sense of gram being like something that houses information, right? Like a physical recording. So your brain has housed within it all these neural networks that you have in your brain cells has housed within it a pre-recorded, a pre-recorded holographic model of the entire universe, which to break that down, it basically means that everything that you're experiencing in your life right now, everything, everything, like this conversation, your past, your future, and all probable realities in between has already been pre-recorded in your brain before you even entered the the simulation that we call life. 
If that's not a mind fuck, I don't know what is. That's fun. And what's fun to me, this is how, this is what makes me giddy in the morning. This is what makes me happy in the morning. What's fun to me is um, you get to, you can go online, you can Google this, you can type into Google the holonomic brain theory and boom, there's information. So it's not just some random person on the internet, on, you know, on a podcast telling you that your brain is a hologram, that your whole life is um, a holographic projection um, that's housed within your brain. Uh, this is information that scientists have come to the conclusion, people who've actually studied the brain have come to the same conclusion and you can go and do the research yourself. I love that shit. I just, it makes me, it makes me happy. Yeah, it's good times. Um, so if you're at this point, so like, okay, well, what, what are the implications there? What does that mean? Um, two things. You can think of it as like, I should say this is where the assimilation hypothesis comes in. I'm going to use really straightforward, simple um, words, okay? When you go and you buy a DVD-ROM or, or, or a video game uh, disc, CDs, or whatever, right? this is old school, but like say you go and, and you go and you buy The Sims, you get the CD-ROM of The Sims. It has the entire game that has the entire game of The Sims in that CD, yeah? And... What I'm saying is your brain is more or less like an organic computer uh, disk ROM, a CD-ROM. Okay, so everything that you're, ex- you're going to experience and you've already experienced is already housed in your brain. And then it just projects everything externally, but from an internal source for your consciousness to experience. Now, what's the next logical thought? Well, the next question is that way, are you saying that everything that I'm experiencing is a figment of my imagination? And um, is this where the solipsism kind of uh, starts to come in? And solipsism is the idea that you're the only conscious being in the whole entire world. No. And this is when game theory um, comes into play. I call it game theory. You can call it video game theory. Um, It might be different from the mathematical game theory, um, but I'm going to hijack the terminology. Um, <laughs> this is where video game theory, to explain the nature of reality, comes into place. When you buy the CD-ROM right, of The Sims that has the entire game contained within the CD-ROM, and you put it into your computer and then log on to the game, other people have CD-ROMs as well. And they all, especially if it's an MMORPG, which is a, a massively multiplayer um, online role-playing game, is that... Millions of people have their very own CD-ROMs, right, and that have the exact same game like World of Warcraft, right, in the CD-ROM. However, they when they log in, when they put their CD-ROM into their computer and hit play, they're all collectively logging into this virtual reality, right, that exists, you know, on the servers of uh, EA Sports or Blizzard or whatever, Um right? On a network. And then it's this one place. So there are, you're not the only person just because you can log into Warcraft, you know, from your computer and you turn and you look around and you see other people, you know, it doesn't mean you imagined them, right? It doesn't mean your computer created them. It's just that they're all independently accessing the same virtual reality world of, you know, uh, Azeroth, uh, the same way we are all individually accessing the virtual simulated world that we call Earth. Okay, so solipsism is not real, um, and you can just use kind of uh, common sense, and you can extrapolate from the uh, micro, which is a video game, to the macro, which is uh, our virtual reality, aka Earth, aka life. Um, and that explains everything. So I am real talking to you. I am not a figment of your imagination and you are real. You're not a figment of my imagination. We're just all subscribers in a video game called life. And we're all just collectively logging into this period in time right now. Okay. So that's fun stuff. Yeah. Um, I, as always, I always say, if you have a hard time, I'm talking kind of fast today because of the interview. Like I'm still kind of um, hyped about it. And I also had uh, two gluten-free cookies, and I think the uh, coconut sugar is cooking is kicking in right now, so I'm hype. Um, but this is a good kind of hype. This is exciting. Um, what we call time is just basically the frame rate, the frame rate in which the holographic nature of our reality plays its way through. Right? That's it. That's all time is. It's an illusion. Um, and the hologram projects everything we're experiencing in three dimensions. Right? 
for our consciousness to experience. So that's, that's fun. Another analogy is um, a further simplification of the entire concept. If you think about the movie Avatar, right? Um, I love this analogy because what you see is a, a human being uploading his consciousness into the body of an alien uh, species. Now, the difference between the movie Avatar and what I'm talking to you about right now is that on the movie Avatar, the Navi, or actual like real physical beings, quote unquote, real physical beings, um, and Pandora, the planet of the Navi, is actually a physical location. I'm taking it a step further and I'm saying... Imagine that this world, Earth, is similar to the world of Pandora, except it's a simulation, yeah? And then uh, the Navi body um, would be similar to the human body, and then you are like Jake Sully uploading your consciousness into a Navi body so that you can experience Earth the way he could experience Pandora. That's the only difference, is that in the story of Avatar, um, they are discussing a an actual physical like alien planet, and I'm saying that Earth is not a physical alien planet. Um, it's a simulation, which also means that um, you could very well actually not even be a human being, um, and you're just playing as a human character the same way that when you go and you play a game like World of Warcraft or Super Mario Brothers, you're not you know a tiny Italian man. Um, <laughs> nor are you an orc or troll or an undead or whatever. Yeah. All right. Cool. Moving on. Um, so all of reality is occurring in your head, but you're not the only one, right? And everything that your experience is already sort of pre-stored in the brain. And then you just log on when you're born, you're basically uploading your consciousness into this reality, Case in point also, I should say, that just because you're occupying this body at this present uh, moment in time doesn't mean that your consciousness is the only individual to have ever played the game of your life. That means that other people have actually um, uploaded their consciousness into your life story. And this has been happening since the beginning of time. So now I want to shift my focus to loops, infinite loops, loops of time, the cyclical nature of reality. And you're asking, well, where are we going with this? What's happening? And I'm saying, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of time, all of civilizations have, all civilizations have addressed the subject, have addressed the subject of reincarnation, the eternal return. Infer, infinite return, uh, recurrence. We've had the idea of the yin and the yang, the eternal circle. We've heard of the Ouroboros. If you haven't heard of Ouroboros, Google it. It's Ouroboros. This started amongst the Egyptians. It is depicted as a, sn a snake eating its own tail. And it basically means that there's nothing new under the sun. All of reality, all of reality, all of history, since the beginning of time, and I mean that literally, since the beginning of time, has always happened and will always happen from beginning to middle to end, destruction, oblivion, and back to beginning over and over again ad infinitum. Um, the Egyptians believed in that, and the Hermeticists, Hermetics rather, <laughs> believed in that. Uh, the Hindus believed in that, the Mayans, the Aztecs, um, well, else? I'm leaving out somebody. The Gnostics, they all believe that all of life has already been pre-recorded. I think there's even the Akashic records, the Akashic fields. You can look into that as well. Everything that you have experienced and will experience has already been recorded and has already probably been experienced by other conscious beings. And this has just been... The Big Bang is not real. And then just emerge out of nothing, right? Life has always been and always will be. This what we call life, this simulation, this reality always has been and always will be. And it continues in a cycle over and over and over and over again. There is a new cosmology that's emerging and that cosmology is called the big bounce theory. The big bounce theory. I sound like one of those corny radio game shows. <laughs> uh, was it the radio uh, host? Yeah. Um, thank you for calling in to CBS 111. Delilah. Anyway, um, the Big Bounce Theory is a new cosmology that says 
And I will try to quote once I sift through all of my notes. Bear with me. Bear with me. Um, The excerpt predates the Big Bounce Theory. The Big Bounce Theory is a hypothetical cosmological model. This is a new model, okay? So they had the Big Bang Theory that came out was 1800, 1900 to explain that there was a Big Bang and then all of reality as we hope we uh, know it kind of emerged. But there was a problem with that. Scientists were saying... Uh, no, there's there's a there's a law, right? And it's a law of conservation, which says that um, you can't just make shit out of nothing, right? <laughs> Matter cannot be created or destroyed, only modified. Modified. So you can't say that all of this, everything we experience, just emerged out of nothing. So physicists are now proposing the model called the Big Bounce Theory. And it suggests that all of what we're experiencing is a cycle, that our universe is oscillatory, and that the Big Bang was the result of the collapse of a previous universe. All of that is just a modern retelling of the eternal return of reincarnation. People have been talking about this since the beginning of time. Case and point. Let's go back. Throwback Monday. I like to deviate from the expected. Expected. Uh, we have Lucretius. Lucretius was an Epicurean poet and philosopher of the late Roman Republican era who wrote couple of pretty cool books, one of which was called On the Nature of Things and On the Nature of the Universe. This was written in 55 BCE, before the Common Era, 55. That was about over 2,000 plus years ago. And this, and I quote, is what he wrote. Nothing, nothing comes into being out of nothing or perishes into nothing. The only two per se entities are body and void. All other existing things are inseparable or accidental properties of these. 55 BCE people, this dude wrote that 2,000 years ago. Nothing comes into being out of nothing. Does that sound a lot like matter cannot be created nor destroyed, only modified? Of course it does. All our physicists are doing is uncovering things that people 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 12,000 years ago have already said that there is nothing new outside, or I should say under the sun, except for the sun's color. That's new now. It's white. Anyway, um, (laughs) so let me tickle that topic real quick before I jump onto you're thinking 12,000 years ago and I'm like yeah 12,000 years ago I'm about to I'm about to go back even further in time but I want to finish with Lucretius's um thought so when he says the only two things per se that exist and have always existed is body and void I took that to mean body mean meaning matter and void, meaning antimatter, because at the time they did not know what that void was. Um, I believe it was Nikola Tesla, he called it the luminescent ether. Um, but yeah, it's antimatter. Um, and those are using modern terms, or you can say that the only two things that do exist are the corporal, which is what we call the physical reality, and the non corporal, and that's using metaphysical terms, non-corporal meaning uh, not having a body, not having form. Yeah. Um, He goes on to say, two further items that might be suspected of existing independently of any concurrently existing body or void, time and facts, are argued to be existentially parasitic on the presently existing world. And thus, not after all per se, existence. This dude is straight up saying that time and history are existentially parasitic on the presently existing world. Time and facts, time and history are 
existentially parasitic. I love that word. I've never heard it put like that before. Existentially parasitic. That's beautiful. Time is a parasite. Time as a parasite. It feeds off of what's already happening. It doesn't exist without form. Time does not exist without form, without matter and void, without what we experience. We apply time. Time needs us to exist. Otherwise, it doesn't technically exist. 2,000 years ago, 55 BCE, Lucretius wrote this. Let's jump back to the 40s. We have Albert Einstein, everyone's favorite physicist, who says, and I quote, people like us, People who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. He's saying what Lucretius says in different ways. He's calling it a stubbornly persistent illusion. Lucretius is saying time is an existential parasite on the presently existing world. That's my mind expanding like the universe. Yes. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. Yeah. So there are other things I would like to, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a little distracted. There's a quote that I'm looking at and I'm just, I'm, de- I'm deciding whether or not I should say it. In fact, I already brought it up, so I will say it. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to cite the source, but there are evidence, there are uh, experiments that have been done that shows that an individual that has, that has been observed, his, his brain is being observed by a scientist. The scientist can guess what decision an individual will make, what choice an individual will make a good six to 10 seconds before the individual is even conscious of the choice that they make. If I can observe your brain making a choice, if I can observe neurons firing a good six seconds before you realize or make a choice, then that choice you think you have, that free will that you think you have, uh, is an illusion. You just think you have free will. There is a great video on YouTube. It is uh, a one minute and 26 second clip, I believe, of Michio Cacao. And I'm sure I'm destroying his name, but it's Michio Cacao. Basically saying... It's, uh, I believe it says how quantum physics proves that free will is an illusion. Go watch that. Go watch that. The information is out there, people. You just have to have the interest in it. My favorite philosophers are, well, a few of my favorite, I have a lot of uh, favorite philosophers, but here are a couple of quotes from my, excuse the, the papers. <laughs> I feel like that one guy, uh, that one meme where that guy in the Pacific rooms, he's got all the papers everywhere and he's trying to like explain what's going on where the aliens are coming in from uh, the Pacific Ocean. And everybody thinks he's crazy, but he's a scientist and he's actually quite sane. Um, he's just having a hard time taking all these super complex um, ideologies and projecting them in a way that uh, people can understand. That's what I feel like right now. But here are some quotes by my favorite, a couple of my favorite philosophers. They all happen to be German for some reason. Anyway, we have a quote by Immanuel Kant. And he says, All bodies, all bodies and space, must be considered nothing but mere representations in our minds. Representations in our minds. Nothing but mere representations in our minds. Existing nowhere but in our minds. Existing nowhere but in our thoughts. 
Immanuel Kant, German philosopher in the Age of Enlightenment, wrote that in the, I think, 1800s, 1700s, right around that time. We have Friedrich Nietzsche, everyone's favorite atheist, or perhaps polytheist, depending on how you want to look at it. Anyway, he says, and I quote, underneath this reality in which we live and have our being, another and altogether different reality lies concealed. Nietzsche wrote about two worlds, a domain of higher value, what he referred to as the true world, and then this false reality of earth where we are presently, according to him, trapped. And he calls this world a shadow reality. I will get back to that phrasing, shadow reality. That is a reference to Plato's allegory of the cave. I'll get back to that. So next we have German philosopher, author Schopenhauer, who literally wrote like a whole ass Bible that was called The World as Will and Idea. He, you don't have to read the entire book. I mean, I would recommend it if you are interested in that kind of stuff. But a lot of what you, what he ends up saying in the entire book, it can can be surmised from the title of the book, that the entire world is just an idea that exists in your mind and that it's your will, or I guess your illusion of will, that kind of pushes you through the experience of reality and the reality experience. And in that he says, life and dreams are leaves of the same book. He goes on to say, we have dreams. May not our whole life be a dream? Or more exactly, is there a sure criterion of the distinction between dreams and reality, between phantasms and real objects? Yeah. My very first nursery rhyme that was taught to me was that song. Remember that song? Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. The first thing that you were taught is that this entire world is a dream. Yet we gloss over that and we still keep thinking this stuff is real. This world is real. It's all illusion. It's all maya, as the Hindus put it. Illusion. Okay. Plato wrote in his Allegory of the Cave, he has Socrates describe a group of prisoners chained to a wall of a cave with a fire behind them casting shadows on the wall ahead. The prisoners mistake the shadows for reality. They do not know that they are in prison, nor do they have a desire to leave their cave. This is until one of the prisoner gets free and he escapes the cave to discover a higher reality, a world outside of the cave illuminated not by a fire, but a majestic and incomprehensible source of light, the sun. It was yellow at the time when Plato wrote that. I bet it was. Anyway, so he returns to the cave, a philosopher, ready to free the other prisoners from their physical and psychological chains. Plato often says that life is a dream. And that it's the philosopher alone that strives to awaken himself. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to get back to my notes in a little bit. To my regular listeners, thank you, as always, for listening, tuning in. What's great about this episode is that typically I think I, when I do sort of say these things, they are, or, you know, talk about the nature of reality. I, I don't know, I don't remember, I don't recall if I overload the the podcast with data that you can, you know, with supporting data, but I'm really enjoying this because it, it's, it's one thing for some stranger, me, me being that stranger to, to say, look, Free will is an illusion. Determinism is real. We are living in a simulation. We are living in a simulation. 
It's another thing for me to pull through history, different cultures all saying the exact same thing that I'm saying now. That makes me happy. Back to Shakespeare. William Shakespeare said, and I quote, we are such stuff as dreams are made of. And our little life is rounded with a sleep. Yeah. We have another quote from his, uh, another one of his plays. And the quote is, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts. His acts being seven ages his acts being seven ages. So I decided to look up the seven ages of humanity. An age, when, when you hear that poem, most people think when they hear that poem by uh, Shakespeare from the play, As You Like It, uh, most people think that he's just, discuss- he's just discussing like stages, although he says all the world's a stage and then he ends with his act being seven Ages. He's talking about two different things. This guy uh, was a brilliant playwright and poet. So it, it, it's art. It's not meant to be taken literally and at surface level. There, there's, there's levels to this shit. Yeah? So an age is an era. It's not just a stage in an individual's life. It can also be extrapolated to apply to ages of mankind but taken literally the poem seems to be describing the same quote-unquote stages of man from birth to oblivion but further analysis of the poem speaks to a different message beyond the surface according to t.w baldwin t.w baldwin was a shakespearean scholar yeah the phrase seven ages of man was actually based on a book called zodiacus vitae which I'm guessing it means the true Zodiac. And it was written by Pierre Angelo Manzoli, who, after he died, the Catholic Church burned his heretical bones, (laughs) and Pope Paul IV placed his book in the first index of the Librorum Prohibitorum. Okay, if he's just talking about you know, a mankind, a, a human being going from birth to death, why would the Pope burn his bones and ban his book? Right? So something, is, something else is clearly going on here. There's, a, there's, there's levels to this shit. Okay? So, the inspiration for Shakespeare's quote, about all the world being a stage and man having to play many parts. In my opinion, based on the research that I did on the Zodiacus Vitae and what, what was the inspiration behind that book, um, tells me that uh, Shakespeare was more or less alluding to the cyclical nature of mankind and the soul of a human, a human being, the soul of a human being as well as the cyclical nature of time. And it would make sense that the Catholic Church would burn the Zodiacus Vitae if it dealt with things of that nature because the Catholic Church does not believe in reincarnation. Um, Otherwise, Christ dying on the cross really would serve no purpose, um, more or less. And they definitely don't believe in infinite realities and things of that nature. Um, so it would make sense that uh, the Zodiacus Vitae would be considered a heretical book. And it would also make sense that Shakespeare would take something like that and hide in it, um, hide in his uh, play a deeper meaning, speaking to the true nature of our reality and our souls. And um, I haven't heard anybody really speak to it. Um, the way I'm speaking to it now, but once it's out there, I hope the idea picks up. Reminds me of uh, the painting. Uh, I believe it was, I don't know, actually, probably Michelangelo, but it's a painting of uh, Adam and God touching, like stretching out, and uh, they're like reaching out to touch each other's hands or whatever. 
And throughout history, nobody noticed that it was actually a brain that was being depicted. Um, so it's art, right? There, there's layers to this shit. You never take a piece of art, whether it be a writing, a poem, or a painting. You never take... These are artists. Come on, man. I'm an artist. I, I know what's up. You never take a piece of art at face value. There's levels to this shit. So let's jump ahead Let's actually, no, let's stay on topic. In the poem, it says, at first age, the infant. Yeah. And then towards the end of that particular phrase, it says, and the last age, the second childishness and mere oblivion. Oblivion is unconsciousness. And the quote, quote, plays many parts, refers to man reincarnating many times the buddhists say that i believe you have to reincarnate 10,000 times before you break out of this loop the cycle of reincarnation so that plays many parts i believe and i think i have strong enough evidence to prove that he's referring to man and by man, I mean mankind as in all of humanity, having to reincarnate multiple times before ultimately breaking from this reality to the world beyond the cave, so to speak. Various cultures speak of ages, including the Greeks, the Romans, the ancient Hindus. Um, in fact, the Hindus spoke of uh, the cyclical eras, what they called the yugas, their cyclical ages. Okay, um, so that's fun stuff. I think I mentioned the robots in uh, Egyptian iconography in the scarab, which is which describes and depicts the cycle of life, death, and rebirth that was later adopted by the Hermetics and Gnostics. I believe I already talked about that. Now, in Virgil's The Aeneid, there is a part of his poem, his epic poem, where he, well, not he, he, but the main character. Um, Aeneas descends into the underworld and learns from his father that most souls are condemned to return to an embodied existence on earth. But before doing so, they have to drink from the river Leth, or Leth, 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 L-E-T-H-E, which causes them to forget their previous incarnations, thus dooming them to repeat the cycle of reincarnation over and over and over again. That's in ancient Greek, Greece, okay? Um, and the Hindus believe that you, you don't want to recy uh, recycle, you don't want to reincarnate. They believe that uh, reincarnation is actually a, a karmic trap and you want to strive to become conscious while you're you know living so that you can break out of the cycle and move past that cycle of oblivion and starting and basically being trapped in this reality and this level over and over and over again. I think I mentioned, I know I've mentioned Uspensky in previous episodes. Um, and he talks about, alludes to the fact that we're all doomed, more or less. A lot of human beings are doomed to repeat the cycle. And he says you have to try to remember so that you can leave, break free of the cycle and move on to the next, next life, the next, the next reality, what Kant would call the, the true world or not Kant, what Nietzsche would call the true world. Okay. Um, I've talked about in previous episodes before the hermetics and they more or less believe the same thing. They believed one, that all is mind. All is mind was written by Hermes Trist. Magistus, which means Hermes thrice great. Hermes was the Roman equivalent of the Egyptian god Thoth. So it started off as Hermes started off as Thoth or Thoth, and then the Ro Romans adopted him as a god and called him Hermes. And his writings were his work was. Con constructed 12,000 years ago and has been kind of passed on through secret societies and utilized by secret societies throughout all history. So much so that little known fact, Sir Isaac Newton 
the founder of Newtonian physics, everyone's second favorite physicist beyond, uh, behind Einstein, was a hermetic. And when you hear of the terminology, uh, the alchemist and the philosopher's stone, um, people on, on, on face level believe that alchemy is a pursuit of uh, alchemists um, and uh, alchemical scientists who wanted to transmute lead to gold. Um, but upon further study, you find out that 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 was symbolism for something else. Lead, base metal, is the unconscious soul, and gold is consciousness and enlightenment. That's what alchemy was, and it was based on the writings of Hermes Trist Majestus, which was written 12,000 years ago by the ancient Egyptian god Thoth. Here's a quote from Thoth slash Hermes. Oh, son, how many bodies we have to pass through? How many bands of demons? Through how many series of repetitions and cycles before we hasten to the one? I'll read that again. Oh, son, how many bodies do we have to pass through? How many bands of demons? Through how many series of repetitions and cycles before we hasten to the one? All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely players, they have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time, in his era, in his cycle, in an age, plays many parts. His acts being seven ages from oblivion to oblivion. The idea of hermeticism is to stop the cycle and to move on to the next reality, to the next dimension, to, quote, hasten to the one. Other famous hermetics through history are Cyprian of Carthage, St. Augustine of Hippo, Giordano Bruno, and, believe it or not, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Go back and read his stuff. Stuff is deep. And like all pieces of art, got to look beyond the surface. Here's a quote by Albert Einstein. Energy is an essence of life that forms its existence, fades, restructures its form, and then lives again. I'll say that again. Energy is an essence of life that forms its existence, forms its existence, fades, restructures its form, and then lives again. Loop that. That's life. Another quote by Frederick Nietzsche. Everything has returned. Sirius and the spider and thy thoughts at this moment and this last thought of thine that all things will return. In 1871, Louis Auguste Blanqui claimed to have demonstrated eternal recurrence in a mathematical, I should say, as a mathematical certainty. Take everything I've been talking about, guys, for the last 44 minutes and 7 seconds. Put it all together from all of life existing in your brain as a hologram to life being a predetermined, pre-programmed, pre-recorded loop where you have no free will and everything is determined and you're just a conscious observer going through life ad infinitum. Put them all together. Start taking a second look at reality and the way that you perceive reality or what you call reality. 
Quote from the Dhammapada, all forms are unreal. Quote from the Dhammapada, which is a Hindu scripture. All forms are unreal. Just as a bubble may be seen, just as a faint mirage, so should the world be viewed. Here's a quote from the Upanishads, another Hindu scripture, which, by the way, heavily influenced the writings of the German philosopher, author, Schopenhauer. We are like the spider. We weave our life and then move along in it. We are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives in the dream. This is true for the entire universe. Here's a quote from the Buddhist scripture that was written 500 years after Sadhatta Buddha had died. So this is more of the, the Chinese Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Far East Buddhism. It's called the Avatamsaka Sutra. Here's a quote. Haven't understood that the world's true nature is mind. You display bodies of your own in harmony with the world. Haven't realized that this world is like a dream. All Buddhas are mere reflections. All principles are like an echo. What worlds are here therein? In these seas of fragrant waters, numerous as atoms in unspeakable fields, rest numerous world systems. Numerous world systems. 2,000 years ago, Hugh Everett's Many Worlds Interpretations, who takes into consideration Erwin Schrodinger's equation and formulates a theory of there being an infinite supply or amount of parallel multiverses. He did that in the 50s, whereas 2,000 years ago, the Buddhists were saying the same thing that there are numerous world systems, as numerous as there are atoms. <sighs> if this doesn't make you pause and re-examine your entire life and your perception of it, I don't know what will, because it certainly has for me, and I love it in a good way. And I personally will replay this episode. I'm mostly recording this episode for me. I'm glad you guys are listening to it, but I'm mostly recording this episode for me because I'm going to loop this shit. I'm going to rewind and replay this shit over and over again until it sinks into my psyche. Until it infiltrates my dreams. And my reality. I'll leave you with one more quote by Frederick Nietzsche. And this is what he says. Here we go. What if someday or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterable, small or great in your life will have to return to you. All in the same succession, all in the same sequence. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him? You are a God, and never have I ever heard anything more divine. That's from The Gay Science by Frederick Nietzsche. I do believe that we do have a limited free will, only because of the fact that there are uh, multitudes of parallel universes that exist as probabilities for you to experience and it's based on your consciousness and your observations um, these are facts 
And so if all, all realities exist as probabilities, then I think that you can live different lives the moment you start becoming conscious. If you live an unconscious life, then yes, you will loop the same life over and over again. But Uspensky said that if you start living consciously, you can start consciously navigating your reality experiences to reality experiences that you choose so they're they're still predetermined and predestined right so that that it is what it is you can't change that but like one of those old school remember those old school choose your own destiny type of books yeah that's the difference most people are living unconscious lives where they basically if they never become conscious while they're alive they never attain consciousness they just you know die live die repeat right like that movie live die repeat um, they just relive the same thing over and over again, not being able to change something. But like in the same movie, the moment he became cognizant of the fact that he was looping, he became conscious and then was able to make different changes to affect his reality experience. So all probable experiences in this virtual reality simulation that we call life, they do exist. So let's say there is a reality where you want a job and you get the job, but there is another reality where you don't. But they all exist in pro- as probabilities. That's Schrodinger's equation. The moment you observe one, the rest coll- the rest of them collapse, and they no longer they're, they they you experience just the one. But but Hugh Everett says that they don't collapse. They just go on existing as parallel universes. You just experience the one that you chose. So all what all free will can basically all you can say about free will is that you can you have the freedom to will yourself to a reality that is more favorable and experience for your consciousness rather than one that's largely one of suffering, which the majority of us get stuck in when we live these negative reactive lives. So I want you to think about that. The next time somebody says something to you, remind yourself that there is a slight chance that you might have to relive that same argument over and over and over and over again. And then you make the choice. Do I want to argue at this point, knowing that I might have to relive this, this life and this experience over and over again, or do I want to choose something pleasant? And by doing that, as Uzbensky, as Uzbensky says, you can, turn, you can turn your life, you can transform your life experience from one of a cycle, which is a circle, to one of a spiral, and eventually break out of the cycle completely.